0: Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering five conversations from episode 60. Our special coverage of Madrigal Pharmaceutical's release of Maestro Nash phase three data originally posted this past Wednesday. This conversation incorporates highlights of our discussion with Donna Crier, founder and CEO of the Global Liver Institute and our former bandmate. Donna focuses her original comments around the Maestro Nash data and the ways it benefits the overall field while demonstrating sustainability for Nash therapy as a whole. Most of this conversation involves, as I put it, pulling on all the threads of what the results and the day mean for sustainability. Donna focuses on the breadth of the magical program and what it means for the range of patients, practical use of NITs to demonstrate their value in patient management, and all the stakeholders whose energies and resources can be brought to bear to build an integrated far-ranging effort from today forward. The conversation takes what I'll call today a double systems approach, focusing both on where the liver fits in the body's overall system and separately on what we have to do in working with healthcare systems to speed and smooth adoption. One word, systems. Two very different approaches. Listen on. Here in Nashville, where we all live, the world changed for good on Monday. This is a quick take on some of what that change might look like. It will be interesting in years ahead to look back on this conversation to see what we got right and wrong. And you get a sneak peek right now. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the conversation in our LinkedIn discussion group. Uh, So, Donna, congratulations to all of us today, hey? Banner day for fatty liver disease.
1: Donna Cryer. I think it's so important when we think about the long-term sustainability of the field, that Madrigal's positive top-line results certainly mean a lot for Madrigal, but they mean a lot to researchers, to patients certainly, as we hope for an FDA-approved treatment in 23, and also for a signal that liver health is open for investors and that it is worth the risk. So this truly is the season of lights in liver health and in NASH. So I am happy to celebrate today, even though we know that there is much more work to be done.
0: So it's interesting. I think of you as being the person from the patient and advocacy space who lives on the higher plane, sees the entire field, and looks at the big picture. Uh, so intrigued that you started with investors, in part because that's where I start. So you make, me, you, you make me feel like I'm looking at this right. But why were investors the first place you went?
1: Because I, I am thinking about, as the, and the Global Liver Institute, to is constructed in part to be a in whole to be a platform for sustainable innovation and engagement identification of problems and solving of problems in this greater liver health space an individual company or an individual result or even an individual legislative wind or education program those are all good things but i really judge the success of our efforts in advocacy have we made it a more welcome and a more productive and more efficient space for everyone to work investors, physicians, researchers, other advocates, other organizations who don't perhaps have a natural connection to the space, to companies who are in the brand and consumer space as well. I judge our success about the health of the overall field. And so to me, these individual results of Madrigal is certainly a result of their hard work but it's also the result of lessons learned from other companies experiences with regulatory with the breadth of experience that Stephen Harrison brings from summit research from all of the research that he does um, across the ecosystem and, and multiple molecules and products and so I see this as representative of the health and progress of Nash as a whole in addition to the individual success
0: so first of all congratulations to the magical shareholders who started stock prices jumped 150% in the last day, from 70-something up to 213.51 at last sighting. So I think that's the smaller note. But Do me a favor. I think you're the ideal person to do this. Let's pull on all the different threads that come out of this one, right? Because you just listed a bunch of them, but let's start pulling on them one at a time and see what it means for everybody for this to go forward. Investors directly was easy. We just did that.
1: Can I add, though, another one to that, investors? To female founders. I want to give a special shout out to Becky Todd as chief medical officer and president, because we know that women attract a fraction, a very small single-digit fraction of the investment dollars that male-led companies companies get. This is a day of celebration for female founders and leaders in healthcare and everywhere else. So I wanted to add that. Fantastic. I think the next thread is the fact that they have you know multiple trials. They are trying to answer multiple questions through multiple regulatory mechanisms. GLI stood our ground in the Nash Council about having a solution for every stage where there were those in industry who wanted to pull us to say that only F4s or cirrhotic should be given focus and we stood firm for years that there needed to be treatments for people across the NAFLD-NASH spectrum. The fact that this research program has had success in F2s and F3s and has increased the evidence in even F1s and others they are non-invasive as well as biopsy-proven NASH. The breadth of the program is, I feel seen, I feel heard, as they say, in terms of, you know, leaving no patient behind and, and really grateful that a company and their board and their investors and the research team would be willing to do the work to serve potentially a broad spectrum of patients, at least to develop the evidence further.
0: Yeah, I think and kudos to the magical team and kudos to our former bandmate, uh, Dr. Harrison, who's principal investigator, I think pushed a lot of that vision. Not alone, obviously, the company and everybody else had to be with it, but that's been his vision forever. I think he's probably having a pretty good day today, although I've not spoken to him yet this morning. Louise, questions, comments before you go on to pull another thread?
2: Louise Campbell. I think Donna did a great summary of that. And I think the only thing I would add to that is it was nice to see such a broad reaching clinical trial that was just not focused on one specific way, but also looked at how this could be implemented in real world after and subsequently if the drug is approved. Because I think a lot of trials go in with the, well, we may not get approved, so let's just do this. Whereas this one appears to have gone in with the, we're going to get approved, we're going to be able to prove this, but how do we also get it into real world? Let's use all of those non-invasive therapies so that we cover a broad spectrum. That for me is a real strength of the data today because I can see how this can be implemented through pathways depending on what you use. I am sure GLI have a very good plan of how they can legislate that and put that through and how they can work through their workers and all of the people that they've supported within the field to advance liver care because each one of them now becomes very vital as part of a hub and spoke. This is the education. We can now see how this does wherever the communities they've come from around the world. So that training program is absolutely valuable in days like this. And over the next year of such excitement for patients, it's great. I think
0: that's a complete thought.
2: No, it was a complete thought. We're doing exactly what she said we'd do. <laughs> it's Christmas. I knew I was going to have one complete thought for the year. <laughs>
0: well, that was a rather <laughs> exceptional gift to give the two of us. We like it. You gave a shout out to female investors. I also want to give a shout out to multiple founders because I think part of the reason this program was so intelligently designed was because of the advocacy of the people they work with. But part of it is because for, for Becky and for Paul, this wasn't their first rodeo, as they say. And I think the first time you go through this and have to actually, to use a very female metaphor, if you will, birth a drug in the marketplace, you learn how many things can go wrong. And you probably get a lot smarter about what to plan for in advance than if you are truly an advocate but never been to the dance before. The breadth of this program and the intelligence with which it was designed gives testimony to the founders as individuals, to, to the people that. Worked with, and also to the experience you get doing this a couple of times.
1: I will quote George Clooney, who said, "I have learned nothing from my successes, <laughs> and everything from my failures." That is very true, and I am really impressed that this group collectively have the humility to learn from those from those failures and turn them into life lessons, into research lessons, regulatory lessons, team building—you know—lessons. There are you know many folks from the larger Corporate team who have been in other companies and environments and have learned various things, and so uh, you know, I think of this as sort of the apotheosis of all the lessons learned by living life in the arena.
2: Amen to that, Donna. Do you see this data and the strength of it as moving us beyond the biopsy in everything other than a clinical trial to prove drug efficacy? Because the retention rate of these patients, I think, were nine hundred ninety-seven or nine hundred ninety-five, and only a, and a very small set of patients did not make endpoints. And some were ruled out because their biopsy, their second biopsy or end of treatment biopsy was outside of the 10 week or eight week window for COVID. They couldn't make it, but they still attended for those biopsies. So they weren't included in the data set, but the retention was massive despite the biopsy, but it has taken us beyond. Do you think that is exactly that sort of legacy that something like Madrigal's trial can give?
1: I hope it's not used against them, that there was such great retention so that people won't say, patients don't mind biopsies. We do. It's just that the study team showed enough care and follow-up and engagement with their patients uh, and patients showed enough commitment to the trial and to the research to do this thing, it should not be used against the field that, that patients retained in a biopsy-determined trial. I think that the 17%, when I was starting to read through, who either did not continue in the trial or had their biopsies too late, if this was sort of a thriller, uh, my heart stopped. You know, <laughs> The dramatic music would have played and I was looking, would they still have this? same effect size, even, you know, with these patients and the fact that they did just speaks to the strength of the compound and the program. But I think we need to look at, you know, is that an appropriate way to characterize those patients in the trial design? And I'm encouraged that they are doing specifically a, a non-invasive trial to be able to develop that data as well. I really think that there there are two factors. It's going to be up to, you know, ASLD and EASL to have guidelines that do not include biopsy. And there are going to have then these trials that are submitted to the uh, FDA and biomarkers, qualifications programs and things on the validation of non-invasive technologies so that we don't end up with a label for any drug. We get so excited, we get to this point, there's an FDA approved treatment, but then it's, it has biopsy limitations on the label. That would not be a great outcome. That would not be a success. That would not be a day for a hurrah. That would mean extremely limited and restricted and and lack of access to whatever medication is approved. It would point out this huge gap between the clinical, the real world environment and the research environment. It would have implications for equity and accessibility. It would not be a success if we were restricted to biopsy in the label. So I maintain my focus and my concern in those areas.
0: So um, first of all, Donna, before you came on, Louise and I had been noting that every conversation we've had this past week, except the one with you, wound up touching heavily on the World Cup. And I figured out how to get the World Cup into this conversation courtesy of your last comment, which is our colleague, uh, Dr. Harrison, if you've listened to him on podcast, which we all have, talked about Michael Jordan and how many times Michael Jordan missed the last shot of the game so that he could make the ones that he made. Louise, I don't know if you recall this, but right at the end of the 2014 World Cup final, Leo Messi had a perfectly makeable direct kick that could have taken tied the game and sent it into penalty kicks. And you saw the look on his face and you knew he wasn't going to make the kick. And I didn't see anything on Messi's face in 120 minutes plus penalties yesterday. It looked anything like I've been here before. I failed before. I'm not failing this time. I know how to get it right. So that's my World Cup reference for today, Donna.
1: My World Cup reference is that my personal trainer constructs my hour-long sessions with an increasing amount Of soccer drills once he learned that I knew how to play. I think it was trapping and passing with my left foot that clued him into that when we were doing a warm up uh, drill. And so throughout the World Cups, more of my session has been in soccer or football for the global community, in football drills.
2: Um, That was a hidden talent we didn't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you've already done the one thing we wouldn't know about you if we didn't ask. So now you've got two, Donna.
2: I was a midfielder,
0: becoming a true woman of mystery. So was my older daughter, by the way. daughter was a keeper. My older daughter was a midfielder. So, And I was a midfielder. So uh, yeah, we all have that in common. So let's pull on the patient thread. What message do patients take out of this?
1: I hope that the message the patients take out of this is, one, that there's hope. Two, that the field has really dug deep. When you look at not only the liver effects, but the cardiovascular effects of this compound, that the attention paid to people's cardiovascular health, as well as their liver health, you know, has been really... Rewarded, And so we're closer to a whole person approach for this. I think that the note for patient advocates is that we will need to be very ready for, for next year to make sure that this comes all the way across the line. I play more baseball than football. So running through the base is what I think about in my father's counsel to run all the way through the base and not stop lest we get called out. And so to me, running through the base means testifying for an approval, helping with the education afterwards, working with payers to make sure that there's meaningful access and adoption. So we need to absolutely be ready for a coordinated and and intense very body of work and and, and period of time where advocacy will never be more necessary than it is then to get this all off
2: on the right foot. We have an opportunity here with this early release and the big hope that this is going to fast track soon after a beta acid. If we get all of the systems right with Donna's Lead and other patient advocacy groups to get this drug through the FDA and get the pathways right with payers, this means that potentially when the EMA come to approval, we already have the networks and the pathways in place that can be rolled out and we can learn from each one for each of the unique healthcare systems. The NHS will be different to the French system we know they're all funded differently how it will affect australia who don't necessarily look at liver poor health or fatty liver disease with the lack of information they're going to be slightly off guard here but i think it's also a system that can upskill very very quickly so it will depend we do have a unique opportunity to get these pathways in place because of the experience in hepatitis c daas and how that's been rolled out in the world quite successfully in different areas so i think we take off our strengths going back to what donna said earlier we learn from where we had disappointments and where it didn't work. And we make a better foundation going forward so that we are in the right place at the right time to be able to locate, treat, advise as a community because we now have cardiology and endocrinology. And the nicest thing about this study was that those comorbid conditions were part of the protocol. Rebecca commented that there were three metabolic conditions included in this. So we are not looking at a drug just for NASH. We are looking for a drug for NASH in those other populations, which are now strengthening their guidelines um, with the American Association of Diabetes now publishing their quality of care metrics yesterday or for January, which include NAFLD. I think that's an on point.
0: And one of the things that goes along with that, which is somewhere between learning from everyone else's experiences and what you just described, was that the one secondary endpoint they called out in the press release today was LDL. Two reasons to do that, right? Number one is because LDL is where OCA founded. So it's a message to the investors where Donna started that you don't have to worry about that here. And then it's a message to the broader world that cardiovascular really matters for the patient populations we're talking about. This is the first thing people worry about, not to worry. So I, I thought that was a really powerful dual message to include in the initial statement that for the reason we started with and the one you just went to?
1: I frequently as I travel throughout this space, this community and field. Uh, I think, what if physicians thought more like lawyers? And certainly, what if lawyers thought a little bit more like physicians sometimes as I like try to bridge the two communities? But when I see this work done in the press release, I think, oh, here's some physicians or at least PR people like like, who thought like lawyers. And what I mean by that is anticipating the questions that you are going to be asked and answering them proactively showing that you have evidence that anticipates and answers those questions. And so um, one of the reasons why I give them an A on this test is that they did just what you said. They anticipated based on what has gone on before rather than thinking that they're dropping this into a vacuum. But in the context of what has happened, what has been the clinical and regulatory precedents, they have anticipated and answered the major questions. And so it makes them look that much more thoughtful and prepared and they bring them a lot of credibility into any process or conversation in which they would engage.
2: It was interesting. Stephen, when he was speaking, actually used the comment, treat the person, not the disease, as part of the thing. And we use that a lot on the podcast to treat the person. You're right. It was a particular skill set. They have thought all around 360 degrees and done a very good job on most of those degrees. So yeah, hats off. And um, I think Rachel Zydas interviewed Rebecca Taub when I was with her at, the NASH Summit when we were in Heathrow. That was earlier on in the year, and I'm sure she had a lot of information then.
0: Actually, Rachel's joining us for the 3 o'clock podcast, in part because I want to talk with her about having interviewed Becky Taub and, and a couple of other reasons to have Rachel there, but one of them is specifically to ask about that interview and what she learned in that interview that informed what she heard today.
1: One question I would have for, you know, and I just throw this up for thought and conversation, what effect would changing the name have on this momentum? Does it add value, positive value, value to this process or Does it detract? I won't give my opinion. I think it's in my tone.
0: If our (laughs) colleague um, Ms. Campbell looks like uh, the cat that just ate the canary, it's because our discussion right before this was with Jeff Lazarus and when reviewing the Nomenclature Conference, that was exactly her question. And yes, that question will show up this afternoon again for various opinions.
1: Great. And I think you should, in your social engagement, that may be the question that you put forward to people throughout this process. However, people have tried to present it. My Participation has been how to make sure that this process is not just an academic exercise, that the real world implications of any changes are taken into account and are, in fact, researched, documented, and accounted for prior to any change. And I think that's what leadership means. I think that's what the field, whether patients, industry partners, investors, I think it's what the field is owed by anyone contemplating such. change at such a time as this. So I wonder how those who feel that this is about publications and uh, impact points feel their contribution is to this process at this time.
0: If I had to guess based on what we heard this morning, and Louise, if you think I'm not representing what we heard this morning accurately, tell me it would be that the pressures to do that are broader. But boy, we better do it now because there can't be any confusion when the drugs get approved. I think that's what we heard this morning.
2: was true. But I thought there was also a recognition that gathering momentum could be positive, even if there was a name change by publication and making people aware of it who'd never been aware of it and using that as an opportunity. Yes, if we change the name, you need to know the new name. No, if we don't change the name. So I think it was a good grasp of were there opportunities in a name change, whether or not it goes down well or not. And I think that was the addition, which I wasn't expecting. Fair.
0: And, And for that reason, do it now, right? Whatever you are going to do, do it quickly because you can't have any confusion left by the time you get there, whatever the outcome is.
1: Right. So, I mean, we'll make the most of whatever is. We just need to be, don't pretend, don't pretend like it's not having an impact and we don't have to do work. To mitigate any of the negative effects. Don't pretend like it's just a thing that doesn't have any real-world implications, that won't put some things back, and potentially if we work hard enough to make them so, move them forward. Don't pretend that it won't be work. That's all I ask of people.
0: I think that's fair. Look, I've made the comment before, I think with you and without you, that one of the striking um, cultural issues around this one is the closer you are to dealing with the commercialization of medications and advanced economies, your, your position on this starts to change the the further away you are the less it matters the closer you get the more it matters you know and and i think that's right i think i think what one of the things that happened today is we moved a lot closer hey demonstrably closer demonstrably closer today
1: and now back to roger
0: We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with the rest of our year-end reviews. Two episodes that include conversations with Mazza Nuruddin, Ken Kuzi, Jeff Lazarus, Stephen Harrison, Naim al and Ian Rowe. You'll want to hear all of it. Until then, wishing all of you a wonderful holiday season and best wishes for a fantastic 2023. Stay safe, surf on. We'll see you next year on the podcast. Bye-bye now.